Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a very good morning to Washington D.C., where we're joined by Andy Shuailio. Some of you may know him from if you've been listening to us all week on the podcast. He is the founder and editor in chief of the China Open Mic blog.、Uh, he's also a former journalist and production manager at CCTV in Beijing. He's a Chinese national, so that makes sense. And also, he's been、uh, very active in the international development space.、Uh, and we are thrilled to have him back on the show. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Eric.、Um, hi, everyone, and very, I'm very happy to be back here. I hope I'm not boring you guys out already. No, <laughs> no, not at all. But today, it's actually <laughs> going to be very good that you're joining us because we're going to be talking about、uh, what potentially could be just the most boring thing you've ever heard of, which is a Chinese government white paper. And trust me,、uh, I've been kind of doing Chinese affairs now for you know going on 30 years, and I've read a lot of these white papers, and they truly are some of the most dull reading you've ever met. Nonetheless,、uh, last week.、Uh, The State Council published a white paper on China, econo- China Africa economic trade and cooperation. Their 2013 report,、uh, despite the kind of lackluster title, this was actually fascinating reading. And really, in many ways, the reason why this document is important, and we'll get to Andy to explain us why it's important in terms of where it came from. But also, in some ways, because you know, China Africa studies is really the art of the opaque. It's the art of you know not getting a lot of information. This is not a transparent field. This is one of the things that academics like Kobus complain about all the time: that getting statistics,、uh, getting information out of the Chinese governments, even out of African governments, is incredibly difficult. So all of a sudden, when a giant report kind of lands on our doorstep with lots of statistics and charts and numbers. Uh, people like us get very, very excited. In, in a couple other things that are important about this report, is that it also kind of gives you an insight into the official Chinese government thinking when it comes to their Africa foreign policy.、Uh, this is really important, and and that's for for good and for bad. And I'm going to start off our discussion here, guys, with a little bit of humor because in paragraph number one, two, three, on the opening section. And I have a feeling that most of our African listeners are going to choke when they listen to this.、Uh, it says, "Quote: Chinese products exported to Africa are generally of fine quality and well priced, and fulfill the consumption demands of all social strata, strata in Africa." End quote. So, if、uh, if I read that and didn't know better, I would kind of then take the entire report into question.、Um, who wrote this,、uh, Andy? And why would they say something like that? But let's kind of get to first. Who wrote the report, and why is it important that it came from an organization called the State Council? State Council, as you know, many of you guys have probably known, is that it's actually it's the equal term to what we call the central government of China.、Uh, so you know, you have the you know the Communist Party is the ruling party in China, and then you have the People's Congress acting as the legislative body.、Um, Of the in the in China system, and then you have the state council, which is the cabinet, you know, the, the the central government that actually does the, you know, the technical work. So、um, I I feel that you know these are a bunch of you know mo- people who are sort of most pragmatic or、uh, who have their feet most on the ground to do the actual work. So I think uh, uh, in terms of uh, well from this perspective, I think what we Summarize or what we say about China-Africa relationship. Actually,、um, you know, 
tells a lot about uh, the the reality right now. So the state council is is really again it's headed by the premier. It is the cabinet. It is the most senior kind of government body. It's separate from the Communist Party. It is not the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And in some ways, this comes from the mouth of power. And I think that's very interesting. So, Kobus, yes. when you, when um, you, oh, go, a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, if I can just add one more thing. The, it actually also, you know, governs all the ministries. So it's really like, you know, the, the highest level of the central government. It's above the ministries. Uh, right. So, so Cobus, when, when, when a white paper comes out like this, I was, I mean, aside from that, that boneheaded statement that they put in the third paragraph, uh, the rest of it was actually very, very interesting and very, very well written. And it's actually quite engaging. In some ways, it reminded me of the, the U.S. government's uh, a general accounting office report that did a they came out with a report last year on uh, comparing china and us investments in africa and engagement in africa and it was again fascinating reading this too is actually very well done uh, and provides a lot of information were you as excited by it as as i was in terms of the quality of the information Yes. Um, you know, kind of, as you mentioned, it's really hard to get specific, uh, you know, and, and official statistics on, on these kind of issues. Um, and here, this is like a smorgasbord of statistics. You, you really, you really get a lot. It's, it's a bit like, after a while, I found myself a bit getting a bit overwhelmed by it because it's, just, it's a bit like drinking from a fire hose. It's just, there's so much. And, you know, so much, you, what you really get a, a view of, is the incredible com- complicated nature of, of China-Africa engagement. I mean, from everything from that there's a task group to to treat cataracts to, you know, kind of, you know, task groups doing research on, on the health of cashew nuts to massive amounts of trade, mining, development. It's, it's really, it's, you know, kind of, if you wanted some detail about what, what China-Africa relations are, then this is the report to read. And I agree with you. That What I found interesting, again, was the level of detail that the government has, has placed on this relationship. And I think this is one of the interesting contrasts between how what we've talked about earlier this week with the United States and China and China uh, – United States and Africa and China and Africa – is that you know people have complained that the the U.S. just is not engaged, it's not focused. They have not committed resources to the to the African relationship, and clearly through this white paper, you can see that the Chinese are as serious as a heart attack when it comes to dealing with Africa. Now, one of these statistics, and we're going to go through a couple of the statistics to get your both of your reaction here. And what I found the most interesting, and again, it was very early on in the report which was a, a breakdown of the distribution of direct investment in Africa by, Chinese, by the Chinese. And again, there's not a lot of information when it comes, is this private or is this a mix with state-owned enterprise? I'm going to assume that this is public investment from the Chinese government. But really, when we, have, when we think about the Chinese investing in Africa, everybody says, well, they're there for the natural resources. They're there to extract oil and, and minerals. And it turns out that according to the statistics, uh, only 30.6% of Chinese direct investment is in the mining sector. Uh, fully, you know, let's see, 20, another 16, you know, 20% is in finance. 16.4% is in building industry, which I guess is infrastructure. 15% is in manufacturing. And then you've got real estate at 1%, wholesale and retail at 2.7%, but fully 30, almost 50% is in non-mining activities. And, uh, you know, Andy, when you, when you look at that, um, it really shows me that the Chinese are doing a terrible job at telling their story about why they're in Africa and what they're doing there. Yes and no. Um, uh, yes, it seems that um, the, uh, 
the composition of China's uh, foreign uh, of China's any sort of investment into um, Africa, um, you know, are questionable in terms of, in terms of explaining uh, or, or, or justifying um, why um, they're there. But uh, just to me, that you know, infrastructure is a big part of um, you know the need of Africa's development. So, sorry, I. Sorry, yeah, Eric, yeah, I no, have to no, organize no, my thoughts a little bit. No problem. Kobus, um, in terms of were you surprised at all by the breakdown of, of the direct investment, um, that it wasn't as heavy in natural resources as, as, as one might think just from following the stories every day? Yes, um, you know, kind of that. That was definitely. I was definitely struck by that. Um, I think also, you know, kind of reading the, reading the, the all of these different statistics um, through the report. Um, one thing that kept coming up for me is that it really makes no sense to discuss China-Africa relations in terms of colonialism. It, you know, it's ridiculous to discuss it in terms of of colonialism. Like, you know, kind of this 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 um, investment might not all be to Africa's advantage. I mean, it, it might not necessarily all be good for Africa, but we definitely need a new word because this is completely different to any kind of colonialism that we know. Um, it's it's a new thing, um, and you know, kind of the, the the breadth and the complexity of the investment is is I think unprecedented. Which I think is also just again to the colonialism argument, the reason why it's just bogus and BS, uh, is in part that the the balance of trade between China and Africa is actually much healthier than it is with other countries. Um, This is not to defend the Chinese in lots of different ways, but, uh, you know, for the most part, the United States is just extracting oil uh, out of Africa, and it's not really exporting anything back. Uh, Very, very little is coming back. Uh, with the Chinese, it's interesting is because we're seeing, again, what you're seeing in the breakdown of this investment, that it's in manufacturing, it's in infrastructure, there's geological, geological prospecting, technology, uh, finance, and the ships are coming back from Africa uh, with, with goods and then obviously with raw materials and coming back with, with other goods. So there is a healthy trade uh, that's going on between the two and not a one-sided breakdown that we're seeing with the U.S. in part where, again, it's oil coming back and nothing going forward to, to Africa as well. So I think that that was interesting. In terms of the colonialism argument, you know, it's funny. I was watching today on Al Jazeera. Uh, they're running a three-part series on French colonialism, the history of the French. And when you watch this this documentary, it's called The French Connection, and I just posted it on our Facebook page, you really see what colonialism is like. The French were badasses in Africa, and that is they raped and pillaged and, and kind of manipulated their way right through to the level that the, that the Chinese are not even getting close to doing. And so I feel that when people accuse the Chinese of colonialism in Africa, it does a disservice to the word colonialism and for the horrors that it brought to Africa for so many years, simply because, as you said, this the balance of trade, the level of engagement that's going on on so many levels is simply not reflective of a colonial uh, type of relationship in that sense. So that was that I thought was very interesting. Let's go to one other statistic that caught a lot of people's attention. In fact, Cobus, this was shared uh, 11,000 times uh, on our Facebook page, which is really approaching a record for us. And it was the statistic that investment has gone up every year by 20.5% uh, since 2009. So for the past four years, we've seen just really a spike in investment from China into Africa. Andy, when you, when you hear about these numbers, I'm curious to get from the Chinese perspective. What do you think Chinese 
I, I don't think the average Chinese person really thinks or understands about this very much simply because it's not very widely reported. But among those who do think about China-Africa relations or China's international relations, does 20.5% sound high to you? Or has that just been what the, the China go global policy, that's what we're seeing all over the world with the Chinese? I think it does sound pretty um, pretty encouraging to to me, you know, as a Chinese person, and I think it definitely resonates with, uh, if not all, a lot of Chinese people um, who are active in the China Africa um, cooperation or development um, fields. So um, it definitely represents. I, I think uh, uh, not only China's uh, uh, fast pace of development, but as well as a lot of promise that we see um, uh, from Africa and from the African people in terms of uh, the, the outlook of the enhancement of their livelihoods and the, the outlook of the, the uh, healthy, as you put it, put it um, development uh, for the, the African economy. And it kind of, although, you know, I think it's uh, still debatable, but it kind of also illustrates um, the possibility or the probability that it's a very good thing that you know China and Africa are collaborating with each other um, to develop it further. And actually, I think the white paper, the report itself, frames it kind of in this way as well, in that it mentions, I think, toward the end of the report, something like uh, the Chinese people are working very hard toward uh, realizing this Chinese dream of uh, the country's revival. Um, and the African people are, are also working very hard and looking forward to a um, you know better Africa uh, to this to realization of this African dream um, of you know better economy and better lives and this is where people from two parties can actually you know uh, work together on. Yeah, you know, if you are, if our, some of our listeners are high school students or undergraduates and kind of writing papers on both Chinese foreign policy and Sino-African relations, one of the advantages of this report is that you will hear uh, a lot of the traditional consistent themes that, have, that date back decades, really, to the Zhou Enlai era of uh, mutual benefit, non-interference in other countries' internal affairs, uh, the idea that, you know, the relationship is a win-win. And that's something that we heard. So, Kobus, you know, from, from a research point of view, we see the traditional kind of outlines of Chinese foreign policy. For those of us who are a little bit more skeptical, you, you see, the, 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 for example, this non-interference doctrine really coming under pressure in Africa because the Chinese you know, are having to, to get much deeper involved in, 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 in other countries' politics in order to maintain their, the billions of dollars of investments that the Chinese have made in specific countries. You know, Sudan comes to mind. Uh, Angola comes to mind. So the question is, is that when you look at the traditional writing of Chinese foreign policy that we see very strongly in this white paper, do you start to become a little more skeptical that that will not be able to hold much longer in this new era where China's footprint in places like Africa and the Middle East are now so much larger than Zhou Enlai could have ever imagined? 
Um, to a certain extent, yes. Um, you know, kind of my, my feeling is not necessarily that that the idea of mutual benefit is gonna is gonna fall by the wayside, but rather that China and Africa are gonna have to develop um, structures to to actually deal with with the complexity of their relationship. Um, and one, you know, we we posted a recent story um, as an example on our Facebook page. Is you know, so there is this, this uh, Chinese company that's been accused of of you know corruption and, and mismanagement in Botswana. And the Botswana um, you know, authorities are investigating this, but Botswana has no extradition treaty with, with China, no official cooperation with, you know, justice cooperation treaty with, with the Chinese justice mechanisms and, and ministries. Um, so the investigation is spanning still. They don't have, they don't have um, you know, Botswana don't have people who can read the, all of the, the documents about this, this company in Chinese. So, you know, kind of just the, the, setting up the fine grain kind of mechanisms in order to police China-Africa relationships effectively to make sure that African countries don't get ripped off, that China doesn't get ripped off, that, um, you know, that, that this mutual benefit actually, you know, kind of moves beyond this vague term into an actual set of mechanisms that actually do bring mutual benefit. That, I think, is a big, is a big challenge. Um, you know, kind of, and, and you know, and in, in working them out, you know that that's going to define what mutual benefit actually means, and I think you know, kind of from that, that maybe be the that might be the big step. You know, kind of like Joe and Lai would be saying mutual benefit over and over, but now you actually have African governments and Chinese officials actually working out what that really means. Yeah, but I wonder when you talk about mutual benefit. Um, you know, mutual benefit really means for a lot of African governments that they have to grow spines and they have to really stand up and slap China around a little bit. And they, and we're starting to see this now. We're starting to see, you know, people like Arthur Mutambara out of Mozambique. We've heard from the, you know, both the, you know, Sanusi Lamido and uh, his number two in Nigeria who are both saying we need to redefine the China relationship and that means we need to stand up to China. So I wonder what if mutual benefit means that Africans get a lot tougher with China and say, listen, you can't play games here. You know, we got to be more transparent. You have to make sure that you're giving us better quality infrastructure. You can't unload a whole bunch of Chinese workers on our doorstep that we can't do anything with. So I wonder, you know, if the Chinese really say mutual benefit, are they ready for what that actually means? Kobus, what do you think? You know, while the investment and the, the, the trade between China and Africa is massive, it's still a really small part of China's total trade. That's so China, China has, you know, a lot of experience in other much more aggressive, you know, kind of regulatory environments. So it might not come as a big surprise to China. But I think, you know, from the African side, um, I don't think it's necessarily, even though China is frequently name-checked um, because it's such a big investor, um, I think the African... African leaders like Mutambara and um, Sanusi and so on, they are also responding to a particular moment, you know, kind of in, in African African position in, in, in the world markets, you know, kind of where African commodities are very valuable and Africa potentially has the chance to to make a lot of money. Um, and they are, I think, responding to not only to China, but to all of these other different investors, Brazil, Malaysia, you know, and, and, and so on, um, you know, kind of and, and saying like, look, we need to not get ripped off by all of these people. We need to set up structures in all 
order for us to, to, to make sure we get what we need from all of them and China being a particular prominent one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, you know, kind of, I, I was, I was filling up my car the other day, um, you know, and, and at the, at the petrol station, I was sitting in there, you know, right in the corner of a poster, like, look, right, small, there's a little Petronas logo. And I'm like, oh, hello, Malaysia, you know, <laughs> nice to see you here. Kind of, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Like African leaders, you know, need to articulate the fact that all of these these names that are just companies drifting around in, 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 in space, they actually have countries where they come from and that they need to, to be very strong in dealing with these countries. And I think you make a good point that uh, we go back to the Ernst & Young 2012 Attractiveness Survey in Africa, which kind of lists for every African country the top five foreign investors, and China is rarely, if ever, in that top five. So China is a relatively small player in Africa compared to what it's in the United States, where it's the largest holder of, of American debt, now more and more in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East, where its investments are absolutely huge. In Southeast Asia, uh, it's much bigger than it is in Africa. So I think that context is always very important. Andy, you've been studying Chinese foreign policy for quite some time. You work in the development space. Uh, you've been a journalist in Beijing. When you look at this report, uh, you know we see the normal platitudes of Chinese foreign policy writing there, as I've talked about, mutual benefit, win-win, non-interference, you know, all of that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what stood out for you in this report when you looked through it? Did anything kind of jump out? Is there anything that when you know, we should advise a reader to kind of keep an eye on for from someone from a Chinese foreign policy perspective? Uh, you know, actually, when I was reading it, and I was uh, linking it also to, to something beyond this uh, box of China, in that uh, maybe it's also because I've been living in Washington, D.C. for quite a while, is that, you know, I started to see, um, you know, a better, again, talking about optimism, optimism that this sort of what, what I would call as a collaborative competition going on, you know, in this so-called trilateral relationship uh, between China, US, the U.S., and Africa. If you look at the, the white paper and on all the priorities that China State Council has, you know, summarized or, you know, put forth in terms of China-Africa trade and uh, cooperation, you see, you know, you also mentioned it, Eric, um, that, um, you know, the focuses are on for example, infrastructure, and you, you see agriculture, food security. Um, there's uh, 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 promoting cooperation under the multilateral framework and um, stressing Africa's, African people's livelihoods and cap- capacity building. And I actually also, you know, happen to look at, say, the website of the, of, of the USAID and to look at their priorities of engaging and helping aid in Africa and uh, a lot of stress was put on uh, good governance, and uh, and you also have uh, supporting democracy, human rights, and uh, health system, increasing the resilience to climate shock. So I really see uh, this white paper, this report, if you look at it from a global perspective, as a very constructive and, and complementary um, element to this whole um, landscape of uh, development in Africa, in that uh, it is competing, but in a very complementary and, and constructive way, together with other major donors like, uh, like the U.S. And um, I'm really, you know, I'm I'm interested in how um, how really things will unfold besides the words 
the you know the, the the fancy words put on the report. Well, of course, that is the ultimate. You know, is is, is you know action action over rhetoric. Uh, just before we go, let me read the five concluding points of the report, and I think this is what's interesting. And this goes back to to what you know Koba said at the top of the show, which is this does not sound like a colonial government. Again, what China is doing in Africa. Uh, can be described in lots of ways. I tend to think it's more like a tributary relationship, which is not necessarily a healthy thing. Uh, That was the relationship that China had with countries like Vietnam for centuries, um, where its sheer size overwhelmed, uh, you know, defined the relationship. And and again, not a healthy relationship, but not colonialism. Uh, One can also describe it as mercantilism, where it's based on trade. Um, But it's not colonialism. And and using what Cobus said, think about these, these are the five points. Number one, Expanding cooperation in investment and financing to support sustainable development in Africa. Number two, continuing to scale up its assistance to Africa so as to benefit more African people. Number three, supporting the African integration process and helping Africa enhance its capacity for overall development. Number four, strengthening people-to-people friendships to lay a solid foundation of public support for enhancing China-African common development. Number five, promoting African peace and stability. So those are the five kind of main, you know, philosophical points that they're driving. Yes, this is propaganda. Yes, this is the kind of idealism that the foreign policy is kind of rooted on. But again, that I, I don't think if we would read something in the 19th century from the British Foreign Office or from the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs about their perspectives on Africa, that it would have been as mutually beneficial, at least in their public propaganda. So um, that is, it's an interesting report. Cobus, I think that as a, as a, as a burgeoning professor and academic this is the kind of report you would recommend to students to actually use in their as, as primary source material for their research on the China-Africa relationship. Yeah, I would definitely. It would definitely be one of them. You know, kind of they would need to. They would need to see to which extent they can cross references with other with other sources. But yeah, this would definitely be a, a very good place to start. It's a good primary source. I think it's complemented very well again with the General Accounting Office in the United States on their report on U.S. China Africa relations. I think those are two very interesting ways to kind of see how the how both they're complementary and different uh, to each other. So, well, that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Andy, thank you so much for being our guest all week on the show. Uh, it's really been wonderful to, to, to get to know you and to hear some of your perspectives and also to kind of get to know the man behind the China Open Mic blog. It's a blog that I highly recommend, especially if you want to get a sense on Chinese development around the world, which is something that's not very well articulated up until now. So I really highly recommend that everyone check out uh, not only the China Open Mic blog, but occasionally, Andy, you seem to be doing uh, Google Plus Hangouts. You're on Twitter. Tell us a little bit more about where people can find you. Thank you very much, Eric, and really, I really enjoyed uh, this week of interacting with you guys on China Africa podcast. And yes, as you said, I run a blog called China Open Mic uh, to examine issues related to, related to China in global development. And there, there have been um, video chats and there have been um, interviews uh, um, on the website ChinaOpenMic.com. And uh, you're welcome to check it out, and as well as commenting on it, and you know, interacting with me on the website as well as on social media, including Twitter. The handle is China Open Mic, and Facebook. Uh, the URL is facebook.com/slash/ChinaOpenMic. I really look forward to you know hearing more from you guys from including you, Eric and Kobus, on the various issues we have put out um, in the blog to, for us to, to discuss, especially um, um, 
on you know when we talk about China Africa project, uh, especially on the people to people exchange um, topic, and that's really something I would like to um, learn more. And uh, discuss more in the future with you guys. Wonderful. Well, one of the ways that Andy came to get to know us is through our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/China Africa Project. Andy is a regular commentator on, uh, on on a lot of our posts, and we'd like to have you as well participate. Again, you know, find us on Facebook and Cobus. Uh, we, you, and I kind of separate each other out by putting brackets next to our name. But uh, if people want to follow you elsewhere on the web, what's the best way they can find you? The easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, you can also find our podcast all over the web. We're, uh, you can easiest place to find us, of course, is on iTunes. We're on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. And now if you're a subscriber to the China Africa News uh, newsletter put out by Henry Hall every week, uh, that's at ChinaAfricanews.com. There's a link to our podcast with a little, uh, little blurb there every week, and you can follow us there as well. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.